Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Today, we are excited to have Dr. Becky Parr here on the AOMPT podcast because we are going to be going over a recent paper that she's the primary author on, Relationship of Sport Variables on Stress Urinary Incontinence in Nulliparis Collegiate Athletes. This is published in 2023 in the Journal of Women's and Pelvic Health Physical Therapy. This is part of our series of pelvic health podcasts here on the AOMPT podcast to branch out a little bit into what else that we can do as physical therapists. I am Nick Rainey, and I am excited to be talking today to Dr. Parr. Dr. Parr, I'd love to introduce you. You are a professor at Hanover College. Tell us a little bit about how is it being a professor for you? Hi, Nick. I love being a professor. I started out as a clinical instructor and just kind of moved my way towards the classroom after getting my academic doctorate. But I've got to say, I absolutely love teaching and getting to share my knowledge and expertise and continue to grow um, in that knowledge and expertise and share that with my students as well. You recently came back from the House of Delegates. Tell us a little, is there anything that stuck out to you there that you'd like to share on our podcast? Oh, thank you. Yes. So I just got back from the House of Delegates yesterday, actually. So I am an Ohio delegate. So I am, you know, one of a collection of members that represents the state of Ohio out of the approximately 440 members that are voting delegates at the APTA House of Delegates. And as, as you mentioned, Nick, it was, it was just this last weekend and we had a lot of motions on the floor. This is my third year as a voting delegate and I am so, I feel so much passion and privilege for being able to help shape the policies and procedures moving forward with American Physical Therapy Association's uh, priorities. Well, thank you for two things. First, by taking out time out of your life to be able to serve our profession as a delegate. I appreciate that. And then two, I know you just got back yesterday, I believe you said it was. We were chatting before the podcast and now taking the time to be able to do this. I very much appreciate your willingness to help further the education of physical therapist professionals in this way as well. Awesome. Thank you. It is my honor. Tell us a little bit about clinical practice. Are you still able to practice clinically or is all your time in academia? Nick, thank you for that excellent question. So, I I am a board-certified specialist in orthopedic rehabilitation, and I actually own a private practice as well. So at Hanover College, I am an assistant clinical professor, meaning that some of my workload is made up of clinical practice. And so I still do practice every single week, working with, primarily working with um, female athletes with orthopedic or pelvic floor dysfunction, as well as pregnant and postpartum athletes participating in returning to their sport postpartum. Well, with that background, maybe that's why I was drawn to your paper here. I also am board certified in orthopedics, and I practice pelvic health as well, and I also have my own practice. So we're, we're kindred spirits there. Yes, we are. Tell us a little bit about this paper. I'll remind our listeners that the title is Relationship of Sports Variables on Stress Urinary Incontinence in Nulliparis Collegiate Athletes. 
Let's start with the population. What made you choose to study this population? Nick, that is a great question. So I'm going to take you on a little story. So as soon as I graduated from physical therapy school, I started working in a sports medicine population. I'm a marathon runner and I run and I lift and I'm just, I've always been just drawn to the athletic population. However, when I got pregnant with my first child, you know, being that, you know, long distance runner, like I worked out like an hour and a half every day, I wasn't sure where to find resources to inform my exercise program. I wasn't sure if I had to like how to scale back or what to do. So being the big nerd that I am, I searched the literature trying to find the best way to how to scale exercise during my pregnancy and then also how to resume exercise and long distance running postpartum. However, I was really disappointed in the overall lack of resources that were available at that time period. So this frustration actually led me down the road of seeking additional training and certifications in pregnancy and public health to help not only myself, but other female athletes that faced similar struggles. So with this research, with additional coursework, background in sports med, I became known as the public health provider for athletes in my region. So as I began to treat these athletes for public floor issues, as well as orthopedic issues, I started noticing some patterns. Many of the female athletes that I worked with struggled with stress urinary incontinence, but their pelvic floor did not seem to be weak. And many of them were young and nulliparous or nulliparous, you can say that either way, meaning a woman who has not had a child or been pregnant before. The literature states that age, increased parity, or like the increased number of uh, pregnancies and childbirths you've had, and vaginal birth are the primary risk factors for stress urinary incontinence. But a lot of the people I was seeing, none of those applied to, but they had it. So I became curious about the risk factors for athletes to develop stress urinary incontinence since their demographic makeup did not appear congruent with what the literature was telling me. Thus, this study was born. I decided to study nulliparous female athletes in college primarily to eliminate the age and the parity variables, so eliminate the being pregnant or vaginal birth, to focus more on the exercise components that were related to stress urinary incontinence in athletes. That is a wonderful story. That's exactly the kind of uh, of story that I was looking for as we're looking to find why this is important to you and why you took so much time to publish this. Thank you. You're welcome. So it sounds like, Dr. Parr, that you had seen this being a problem with the patients that you were treating. And so you went to the literature to find out what was there, didn't find it. So you wanted to create your own research about it. Can you tell us a little bit about recruiting these athletes and and where they came from? Sure. Sure, Nick. That's a great question. So as you all know, in research, recruitment can certainly be an issue. Luckily, I was with a university, and I was able to utilize the athletic director and the athletic trainers at that university, as well as two other universities to assist with data collection. So we had about, let me think, let me remember. I think we had 251 athletes respond to the study. Some of them did not meet the inclusion criteria. So for the overall sample size, we had 209 athletes out of three institutions all over the United States. Wow, that's outstanding for being able to get good data. In the paper, it showed that 45% of the athletes that you studied had urinary incontinence. It's easy to have statistics, but I'd like to be able to make these people relatable humans. Can you talk about the difficulties that they were having? and why this is important to study this population. Sure. So in the literature, we know that 
stress urinary incontinence or urinary incontinence in general is a big issue for our female athletes. A lot of them are leaking urine with exercise, during competition, during training, and then also with other daily household tasks as well too, sometimes with sneeze, cough, laugh. So the definition of stress urinary incontinence is the leakage of urine during cough, laugh, sneeze, or exercise. Just just to throw that out there for those of you who are not as familiar with stress urinary incontinence. And the big things in this, what I found in my lit review were that women who had or females who experienced stress urinary incontinence during sport were significantly more likely to have continued and then also worsened uh, leakage decades later even and have significantly worse quality of life scores. Half of women who have urinary incontinence during their sport limit their physical activity in some manner. So they may stop exercising if they have leakage or they may modify their exercises or their level of participation to make activities not as difficult to to stop some of that leakage. In general, individuals who have stress urinary incontinence and who are athletes will report worse physical and mental well-being as well, including greater isolation. And then some who stop sports start experiencing greater weight gain as well. So there's a lot of different potential contributing factors for stress urinary incontinence which is why I felt so called to study this population. So we have a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast. Some of them may be pelvic health therapists where people are coming to them primarily for stress urinary incontinence. Some of them may be treating other issues that these individuals may have. They may have a nulliparous collegiate athlete and that they're treating for back pain or for neck pain or knee pain or you know some other pain or injury. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of how, how they could start bringing this up to see if there's other avenues that they could be helping them with, like with stress urinary incontinence, that they may not have addressed because it didn't seem to be related to their primary or chief complaint? Nick, that's a great question. So I've got to say, when I was purely an orthopedic clinician, I would always ask about, oh, have you had any bladder bowel changes? You know, we all do that as physical therapists. We're taught that that's a really important screening question. But then sometimes I would get, oh, yes, actually. And then they'd start talking about the leakage. And then I would be like, eh, but, you know, is are you like numb in your saddle area, et cetera? And you'd go off the, okay, I screen them. They're fine. They have urinary leakage. Moving on. You know, now that I'm working in pelvic health, I realize that's not, that was not the best course of action way back when. I'm so sorry to those patients that I, I just blew off, but I'm better now, I promise. But what I would recommend if you are screening and then they are answering yes in the affirmative, clearly, you know, screen out the red flags, but then you can ask a little bit about their pelvic floor dysfunction. If they are talking about any sort of urinary leakage, you certainly can ask about when it's happening how severe it is, how much does it affect your quality of life. In my study, I use the ICIQ UI short form. So that's the International Consultation on Incontinence Questionnaire short form. And that's really easy, like a six question outcome measure. It's extremely easy to use. It's free, widely available. That may be worth having and just a little print off in the clinic that you could give to patients who are answering in the affirmative just to get a little bit more information. And if it is affecting their quality of life, if it does seem to be a pretty significant problem, then there's your answer. Let's go ahead and refer this person on to to a public health clinician. Additionally, if what I also found being an orthopedic, 
and then moving into pelvic health, a lot of my people who had back pain or hip pain that were not improving tended to have some pelvic health components going on. And so when I was working in a clinic and I had been doing pelvic health, I would have people who my, my colleagues would, you know, send over their patient who had back or hip pain that just was not improving for like a pelvic health consult. And almost, I swear, almost 100% of the time, there would be some sort of a pelvic floor component going on that we would work with them. And we could still work together. So that person would see the other person for, you know, orthopedic work. And then I would assist in some of the pelvic floor work as well. And so we can just communicate. So that's another really good option as well. If somebody's just not improving, if you've got a public health clinician in your office, you know, it may be worth just a consult. If you don't, I would highly recommend becoming friends <laughs> with a public health clinician in your area, if not just to bounce ideas off of, but it would be great to have a relationship with somebody. And so you could, you know, shoot them over like, hey, I think I have this patient that I would really like a consult on. I definitely hear you on that, Dr. Parr. One of the main reasons I started doing pelvic health is because I generally had good outcomes with people with low back pain, hip pain. And I realized that the ones that didn't get good outcomes had similar features that all went back to pelvic health. So I I can definitely understand that. I'd like to talk about a little bit more about you know, screening them out. I'm with you. You know, everybody comes out of with the doctorate, you know, is asking, you know, about bowel and bladder changes. And we hope and pray that they, the patient says no, so we don't have to deal with anything there. And if they do, we have to ask a little bit more. And we're hoping that, you know, we don't have to send them off for emergency surgery. And but as you start to play in this world a little bit more, you see that there's a lot more than just marking no to bowel and bladder changes, that that doesn't mean that there's no problems with their mm-hmm. bowel or bladders. <laughs> I had played with two questions on our intake forms, and they were back-to-back. One said, do you have any incontinence? And almost everybody marked no. And then I would put, do you ever leak urine with coughing, laughing, or sneezing? And a lot of people would mark yes, even after they'd marked no on incontinence. You know, so typically it takes a couple, que- you know, a couple questions there to, to get that out. Sounds like you have a similar, <laughs> similar experience to that as I do. Absolutely. And what I thought was really interesting when I was doing my study was we would ask the same question. So we would ask if they had urinary incontinence and so many people said no. And then you give them the ICIQ form and then they're checking yes to win all the urine leaks. And then you're finding out, well, they don't consider that incontinence. They consider incontinence like having full-blown, like peeing your pants to the floor episodes or not making it to the bathroom. And a lot of them are also not connecting having any sort of urinary leakage with sport to be incontinence. They thought, oh, incontinence, that's something that older individuals get. That's not something that I do. I just leak urine sometimes. And so when you educate them that even a few drops of urine leakage, that's still abnormal. That counts as urinary incontinence. Then you start getting different answers. And so what I did was, you know, due to the health literacy of these these young individuals, plus they don't want to be labeled as having incontinence when they're 19. So we just start phrasing it as urinary leakage. So when, so we'll say like patient, when you're running or jumping, do you experience any unwanted urinary leakage? And you'll get significantly different answers if you're able to manipulate how you're asking the question to make it sound like, oh, okay, this is something I feel more comfortable answering because I'm not going to get a di- like an incontinence diagnosis based on that. 
definitely rings true with the our outcomes can or our results are only as good as the data that we get put into there, right? Mm-hmm. I do feel like the health literacy of young adults is a little lacking in the pelvic floor space, though. Based on my study and some of the research, other outside research that I've been doing, I do feel like there is a significant barrier to understanding what the pelvic floor muscles do, um, what is what all is involved in urinary continence, and what does constitute leakage. So I feel like a health literacy study in collegiate athletes in terms of urinary incontinence would actually be another great study for the future. You mentioned the ICIQ form. That's one I'm not familiar with until I looked at, at your research. You talked about it's only six questions. Forms and questionnaires are often, are often talked about, whether it be at presentations and podcasts like this. And uh, oh, you could do, you know, this would be one you could use. I find it's more difficult to implement them into clinical practice because when in the session do you do it? Which population do you do it with? Do you have any thoughts being in academia, research, and owning your own practice on what the best way, like who should be clinicians be giving this to? And at what point in the plan of care would you recommend doing this? That's an excellent question. In, in terms of what I found in my clinical practice and in my research, I have found, so previously in previous institutions I've worked at as a clinician, the front desk staff will give out the outcome measures that will utilize that for our very first evaluation. And especially when you're talking about incontinence, like issues I just mentioned, you know, individuals maybe not considering themselves to have it, maybe they're, you know, not quite health literate to understand how to answer the questions. I don't feel like the questionnaire is, that's the best time to, to provide that questionnaire. I think it makes more sense after the pelvic health evaluation to give them that questionnaire because then they understand what the questionnaire is asking. So the questionnaire, for example, the ICIQ UI short form, I mean, it has six questions, but the four are like the very primary questions where it's asking frequency of, of urinary incontinence, the amount of leakage, overall impact of urinary incontinence on a quality of life. And then a self-diagnostic item in which you're saying, oh, you know, I leak when I'm not quite making it to the bathroom or I leak with exercise. You're, it's just check boxes of when are you leaking urine? Like what's happening? It's, it's the issue of they're not understanding the word incontinence. And so having that conversation with the patient or client beforehand, where you can talk about, you know, it's really any involuntary, any involuntary leakage at all. It can be just a few drops. It can be quite a bit. I think that's really helpful to talk through with your patient so that they can better describe what they're experiencing to you. And thus, I feel after the first session with the physical therapist is probably the most ideal to get the most accurate reading on the outcome measure. And is this a measure that you would redo in the future to see if anything's changed? Or do you just have a sense of that based off of with only six questions with how they're progressing with their plan of care? So I actually ask a lot of the questions as part of my subjective and follow-ups. You know, I'm always asking, you know, down the road, so say it's been like a month. Okay, overall, what's the amount of leakage like now? What's the frequency of urinary incontinence? So you could almost fill it out yourself because you should be, if you're a public health clinician treating urinary incontinence, you should essentially be answering these questions. But it would be very easy to just start your session off, you know, after they filled it out once before, when you're doing your progress note to just have them fill out this questionnaire 
and it will inform your evaluation and help you answer some of your goals. And it sounds like, you correct me if I'm wrong, that even if somebody's not a pelvic health clinician, if they recognize that, you know, they're treating somebody for low back pain or an injury, you know, they probed a little bit like you discussed, and they they could ask some of these questions and make sure they're just, they're not missing aspects of the care for this person. Yes, I would agree with that. I think, you know, this is a validated outcome measure. It's made for patients to be able to read and answer themselves. So I think with the extent of physical therapist background knowledge and what we have to do to come out with a doctor of physical therapy degree, I think any doctor of physical therapist could be able to utilize this, this outcome measure to see what's going on with their patient in terms of, of urinary incontinence and to also see what effect it's having on their quality of life. And it could influence what type of a referral you would want to make. Cool. Thanks for that discussion on making this applicable in clinical practice. Let's move on now to what else could be going on with these individuals. Uh, A lot of our listeners are orthopedic physical therapists. About every orthopedic physical therapist sees people with low back pain. We know that there's correlation between low back pain and stress urinary incontinence. Could you discuss just a little bit if you think that there is a higher prevalence of low back pain with this patient population? I know it's a little different patient population than what is typically in the literature. So I'd be very curious in your thoughts on the correlation with this population with incontinence and low back pain. Oh, absolutely. So, so you're right, Nick. So there's a lot of literature out there correlating low back pain and stress urinary incontinence. In my study, I did not look at low back pain with my collegiate athletes. However, you certainly could, you know, kind of look back on the studies and say, you know, if they're having some difficulties with their intra-abdominal pressure regulation in terms of the continence mechanism, it could make sense that they're having some issues with back pain as well, since you know, the pelvic floor and multifidus, transversus abdominis, diaphragm, all of those muscles are working together to help generate intra-abdominal pressure, which your athletes are going to need in order to run, jump, lift, etc. I appreciate you referencing the intra-abdominal pressure on past pelvic health podcasts that we've done here on AOMT. We've also discussed the intra-abdominal pressure and its importance for so many functional activities. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go on to one of the other findings in here. It was notable that all that BMI greater than 25 was correlated with incontinence uh, for these athletes, but that it was not in your recommendations to address this. Personally, I agree with this. These are obviously not physically inactive individuals. They're collegiate athletes, and over half of them had a history of disordered eating, which was also in the data there. And there's quite a bit of focus lately if if you follow women's health and sports over REDS, which is relative energy deficiency in sports. You know, with so as I'm looking at that, I know a focus on weight loss could potentially be counterproductive for this push to, you know, not have a relative energy deficiency in sports. And it could also be counterproductive for their mental and physical health. Can you share your thoughts on leaving out a recommendation to decrease BMI to below 25 to improve incontinence? Of course. So in my study, the athletes that had a BMI greater than or equal to 25, which is the cutoff in the literature for being overweight, those individuals did have significantly greater stress urinary incontinence. However, as you noted, all of the participants were verified collegiate athletes and thus not physically inactive. 
we know that some athletes have much higher BMI values as a result of significant muscle mass rather than obesity. So in my study, I looked at, you know, I looked at all the NCAA sports. So some of these athletes were like um, shot putters, you know, versus cross country runners. And so they're going to have significantly more muscle mass, but they're not, they're not fat. You know, they just have a lot of muscle mass. We know that BMI should not be used to classify health. And there's a lot of different publications that support that statement as well. It is my personal opinion, being a researcher and a clinician, that additional measures should be utilized with athletes with a BMI greater than or equal to 25. So we need to look at strength, power, and endurance training of the pelvic floor to counteract the increased stress placed upon the pelvic floor musculature due to their additional body mass to assist in urinary incontinence. We should not be focusing on having that athlete lose weight. Thank you for your personal thoughts and experience with that. I I definitely agree. Going on to other results, did any of the findings in here surprise you when you analyzed the data at the end? Yes. I was surprised that there were not any statistically significant findings between my high and low intensity groups or with the weekly volume of exercise. So when, when I did investigate this a little bit further, I determined that really all of the collegiate athletes participating in the study were exercising at such a high volume and a high intensity, according to the published definitions in the literature. Therefore, there was a ceiling effect, and that's why there were likely no differences seen in this study. If I had examined recreational exercisers with my athletes, there may have been enough of a difference between the volume or the intensity to see a change. But since I had only studied college-level athletes, I didn't find anything super apparent. You know, all of those athletes are college-level athletes, so their, their exercise volume was just off the chart. That's interesting. So you had anticipated that intensity of the sport would, could determine if incontinence was there. But then looking back at it, they're collegiate athletes. It's all more intense than a recreational athlete. Yes, and, and that's exactly what I found in the literature. So in the literature, I had seen that there were differences in stress urinary incontinence amongst intensity levels. However, uh, so we utilized met minutes in my study and my athletes had like double the amount of met minutes than what was published in previous studies. So my population was just, it was just different. So it was really interesting to look at that and see, oh, okay. Well, they're all, they're really all in this higher intensity category. I mean, when I try to utilize the published guidelines on like intensity, I only had like seven maybe that like fell in that. So I just kind of divided it into, we, we found a different definition of the intensity and moved it into like a high and a low comparatively, but it, it, it didn't really show us anything significant until we combined the volume and the high intensity. So athletes who were exercising six or seven days a week at that high intensity level were significantly more likely to experience stress urinary leakage. And that was a significant finding. So it looks like if they were that at the very top end of the intensity, that it was relevant compared to the population that you studied. That's correct. That is, that is applicable information. I'd like to end with a couple, couple more questions discussing how our listeners can apply this in their lives first has to do with research. Some of our listeners are researchers or aspiring researchers. Anything you learned while in the publication process of this paper that might be helpful for our audience? Sure. 
I, I think the number one thing is to review the journal's scope and their priorities. Second, I would make sure your article isn't too similar to one that has been recently published or else it will get rejected. My initial journal I submitted to, I was like, yep, this is the one I'm, I'm going for. It's the, the top journal. It's amazing. This is exactly in their scope. <laughs> and they sent me a rejection letter and said, I'm sorry, we, we literally published an article on stress urinary incontinence. Like we're publishing it right now. And so it's going to be too close to that article. <laughs> oh no, that was no fun. And then I sought out a different, like a sports medicine journal. And they told me that they were not interested in my topic because it wasn't applicable. <laughs> like really? Stress urinary incontinence in athletes is not, is not applicable to this journal focusing on athletics? Okay, sure. So then the next, like, okay, I mean, I felt like I wrote a really good cover letter explaining why it was applicable, but it's just such an interesting topic because we're marrying more of like a pelvic health field with the sports and athletic field. And so the journal, so the editor has to be really receptive to that. So third time was a charm. I wrote a letter to the editor just seeing, hey, would you be interested? They were like, yes, actually, that seems really interesting and novel. And I think it'd be a good fit here. <laughs> so it worked out. They were actually doing a special issue on the female athlete. And they were like, this is perfect. We love it. So made it into the, the special issue. Well, I'm glad that it did. I do. I look at the Journal of Women's and Pelvic Health Physical Therapy each each time it comes out, being a member of the academy that it's it's associated with, so I'm glad it glad it finally got accepted into a journal that that I read. Yeah, and it's I mean honestly, it's a great journal, and it's a it's one of the top journals for you know physical therapy in terms of pelvic health. I was a little disappointed it didn't make it into the sports journal because I felt like it's a lot of the sports therapists that need to read it, but they just did not seem as receptive to the content. So I was a little disappointed on that. So that's my big. My big take from trying to get published is make sure the editor is receptive to the information that you want to get published in their journal. Because if they're if they're not, then you're just wasting your time, like formatting your manuscript and etc. You know, there's a lot of truth to that. If there's a pelvic health therapist listening to this, you know, they're saying amen a lot, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas if it's an ortho or a sports physical therapist, that's their primary domain. There's a lot that they can glean from this. And if you're reading the Journal of Women's and Pelvic Health Physical Therapy, you've probably done a little bit of pelvic health physical therapy. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, well, of course I would, you know, and it, it wasn't my top choice for that reason, because I thought, you know, these people are already paying attention to pelvic health. But it was nice because they were able to draw in that sports and orthopedic concepts that sometimes this particular journal is lacking some of that. But yes, it would have been really nice for it to be in like a purely sport journal because I do feel like this content is so important. Interestingly, so I do lecture in athletic training curriculums on stress urinary incontinence to teach athletic trainers the signs because that's one of the big messages I got out of this study is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of our female athletes are having urinary leakage, you know, almost 50%. So who is going to be the first person to notice? you know, classmates or teammates, probably, but the athletic trainer that's working with this college team, they have to do their physicals, they're doing their check-ins. And if we can educate the athletic trainers or the physical therapists that are working with them on stress urinary incontinence, kind of the activities that could increase the incontinence that, you know, just we want to try to increase their awareness so that they're able to get an appropriate referral out. 
I think that's outstanding working with the athletic trainers on this because they you're exactly right. That's who's going to notice notice this first. So I you know and the people that could start screening for this and help help these individuals early. That's that's fabulous. Thank you. Well, even though it was not in a classic sports journal, lucky for you and for our listeners and for the patients that we help, there is a lot of uh, sports and orthopedic therapists that listen to this podcast. And so let's make it applicable to them. If there is a there's an orthopedic therapist or sports therapist that's treating a nulliparous uh, female collegiate athlete, and they're seeing them for something like back pain, neck pain, knee pain, or a recent injury, and they do a good job of asking more questions than just any bell and bladder changes, and they find out that the person is struggling with urinary incontinence, what are some tips that you can give them that they could apply today when they see that patient? Sure. So if you're treating a college athlete for something else, like you mentioned, like hip pain, back pain, something like that, and then you find out that they are experiencing some sort of urinary leakage, there are definitely things you can do as an orthopedic physical therapist without pelvic health training. So number one, you can ask them questions about that urinary leakage to determine when it occurs and how severe it seems, right? So is it light? It's just a, you know, a couple drops of urine. Is it enough to wet the underwear? Do you have to wear a pad? Like, is there urine pooling on the floor after you lift? So you can determine the severity. You can also use an outcome measure, like I mentioned with the ICIQ UI short form. If your athlete is telling you that leakage only occurs during specific movements, so for examples, like squats and deadlifts seem to be big triggers in the female athlete literature, what can you do as an ortho PT? Well, let's analyze those motions to see if there's any biomechanical flaws. As an orthopedic PT, you are in an excellent position to optimize that person's motor pattern, which may improve the urinary incontinence as well. So that's one of the big things that I would take away is figure out when it happens and then do that motion analysis. Try to clear things up in the kinetic chain and maybe that will be enough to make a difference. Also, certainly, I do want to mention staying within your scope of knowledge and referring out to a pelvic floor physical therapist as well for additional evaluation as necessary. That's excellent. Obviously, some of that is very applicable to your high-end athlete, like a collegiate athlete, if they're lifting heavy weights. I think a lot of those extra questioning could provide, could uh, be applicable to anybody that we are seeing in the ortho, you know, or sports realm, even if they're not a high-level athlete, they're doing something physically, you know, which is tied to, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it be sport or daily activities, we just need to press a little bit more with those questions. And I know I find, you know, if if people are hesitant to ask those questions just because they haven't done them, it doesn't take many time asking those and you realize that people are all right talking about that. Maybe not in a big gym setting, maybe you need to be off to the side or in a in a treatment room. But people are i I don't remember any times when people have had, you know, been shy about discussing that with me. I don't think so either, because you are a healthcare professional. If you mention why that you're asking these questions and then relating it to them about how there may be dysfunction in their movement system that you can help them with as a physical therapist, a lot of times they will be forthcoming with that information. So I have not had very many instances where if you frame the question in the correct way, you are utilizing your therapeutic alliance and your empathetic listening skills. You know, I wouldn't be like, hi, my name is Dr. So-and-so. Do you leak urine? You know, you want to you kind of structure it within your evaluation at an appropriate time after you have already 
kind of created that alliance with that patient so that they trust you, they know that you appear competent, and that there is likely a reason why you are asking that question. Well, I think that makes us all happy to know that the first thing we need to talk about with people is not how they're peeing. So that's, that's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> any, any parting comments before we conclude this episode? I think the biggest takeaway is that stress urinary incontinence is due to some issues with intra-abdominal pressure management. And as a sports and orthopedic physical therapist, you have lots of tools in your toolbox to analyze how they're managing their pressure and to optimize that pressure management. Also, we do know that individuals, so like college level athletes who are leaking urine do tend to have greater amounts of impact or, you know, high intensity exercise. So you're also in a good position to perhaps look at their impact. How are they jumping? How are they landing? Are they heel striking when they're running? How can you lower the ground reaction forces to lessen the burden on the pelvic floor? You guys are smarter than you think. Just use your PT brains, analyze the biomechanics. And honestly, I think you will have a lot of success. That is wonderful parting words to leave our audience. Thank you, Dr. Parr. Thank you. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.